U.S. Navy history arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. My name is Dale, and over there is Steven, the XO. Hi, Steven. Hey there, everyone. How you doing? Oh, they're fine. They told me. Oh, excellent. So, we are going to start on the Mexican-American War today. How are you feeling about that one? Oh, <laughs> mixed feelings. Very mixed feelings. It is history. It's very important that we go over this. But, uh... Well, that, that's what you're supposed to feel about history, period. That's fair. That's fair. So, are you ready to get it away? Let's cast off. All right. So, Mexico gets its independence from Spain in 1821. Good for you guys. People don't realize sometimes that Spain was in control of Mexico or South America before becoming Mexico. Uh, is, who's going to tell them about Florida? Oh, we've already done Florida. I, I know, but I assume these are the same people that don't realize Florida was a Spanish colony as well. Or that Louisiana was a French colony? Oh, uh, considering some of their cuisine, I think that one goes without saying. <laughs> so, after they get their independence, they have a lot of internal struggles. And so... That caused them to be on the verge of a civil war. But they were pretty much united in refusing to recognize the independence of Texas. They're like, we just got our independence, but we don't want you to have it. Yeah, I keep forgetting that Texas was its own country for a decade and change. It was its own country for a while. So Mexico threatened war with the U.S. if it took Texas. So, while this was happening, President Polk's spirit of manifest destiny was focusing U.S. interests on westward expansion. So, Mexico's like, we don't recognize it, and U.S. is like, we're going west. So, this was the perfect storm of Mexico refusing to let a large amount of what used to be Mexico go without a fight. And the U.S. being like, you know, I'm liking our odds if we do this. And you have a lot of nice territory in the area we're heading towards. So if you want to rumble, let's rumble. Sounding like that, yeah. So the military and diplomatic capabilities of Mexico was under a decline after it gets its independence. And it leaves the northern one half of the country vulnerable to the indigenous peoples, which were the Comanche, the Apache, and the Navajo. The Comanche were especially excited to take advantage of Mexico's weakness, and they undertook large-scale raids hundreds of miles deep into the country to take livestock and to sell to the U.S. and expanding their markets in Texas and the U.S. And at this point... Before the Mexican-American War, the northern half of Mexico is a lot of modern-day Arizona, New Mexico, California, stuff like that, right? Yes. Okay. And also a lot of what's below the Rio Grande as well. But yes, it does inch up into what is now United States territory. So these raids left thousands of people dead and devastated. The 
northern Mexican land. When the American troops actually entered northern Mexico in 46, they found a very, very demoralized people. So there was pretty much no resistance from the civilian population. I mean, yeah, if you're being attacked and raided by, you know, natives or hostile forces and your government isn't really doing much to protect you, suddenly the invader looks like, you know, let's give them a fair shake. Yeah, these guys don't look so bad. Look, they got candy bars. <laughs> and guns that work. And they're here. Yeah. And they're not killing us by the thousands. So in 42, the American minister who was in Mexico named Wadi Thomas Jr., he made a suggestion. He thought that Mexico might be willing to cede California to settle its debts, saying, quote, As to Texas, I regard it as a very little value compared with California, the richest, the most beautiful, and the healthiest country in the world. With the acquisition of Upper California, we should have the same ascendancy to the Pacific. France and England both have their eyes upon it. Unquote. So the attempted diplomatic solution was, sell us California, we'll wipe the uh, debts that you have with us. At least some of them. Yeah. Yeah, you give us this land, we'll forgive some of your debts. That's really not that unreasonable. Uh, I, I was going to say, by 19th century politics, that's, yeah, that's a business transaction between nations. That's par for the course. Yeah. Uh, so President John Tyler, his administration, he suggested that a pact would settle the Oregon boundary dispute and provide for the secession of the port of San Francisco. Lord Aberdeen decided not to participate and said that Britain had no objection to U.S. territorial acquisition there. So it seems like the British were just like, oh, we ain't got nothing in the game. Yeah. You want to take it. I mean, yeah, we're, we're still a little ways away from the pig war, I think. And uh, that was Washington state. Yeah, this is Oregon. Right, right. So I'm just wondering why they would even have any objections. Well, I mean... How nice of us to ask? Well, a lot of blood has already been spilled between the two nations about territory and things of that nature. So, you know, maybe a little bit of walking on eggshells. How tactful of us, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a British minister in Mexico named Richard Packenham. And he wrote to Lord Palmer Stung in 1841, saying, quote, To establish an English population in the magnificent territory of, of Upper California, no part of the world offering greater natural advantages for the establishment of an English colony, but by all means desirable that California, once ceding to belonging to Mexico, should not fall into the hands of any power but England, Daring and adventurous spectators in the United States have already turned their thoughts in this direction. Okay, so England did have its eyes on California earlier in the decade. Right, California, but not Oregon. Right. So uh, it makes a little more sense than why we would uh, 
you know, be a little diplomatic with the British about this. Here's my question to that ambassador, or whatever his title may be. Minister. England. Gloomy. Constantly overcast. You know, temperate weather. Ah, yes, California. Constant sunshine. 80 degree weather constantly. Hmm. Oh. Can break a hundred sometimes. Also a lot of desert. This is splendid for the English folk. What are you smoking? Yeah. But by the time the letter reaches London, Sir Robert Peel's government, his Tory government, had come to power and rejected the proposal as expensive and a potential source of conflict. So again, remembering all the bloodshed they had just had with us in the last 40 years. Yep. Aaron was like, we got our butts handed to us a number of times now. Maybe no. And, and I was going to say, like, how are you going to get colonists there? Like, yes, I mean, it's not the most far-fetched thing. Australia is a penal colony at this point, but you're sending convicted criminals and their guards to Australia. You can afford to lose ships and or people around Cape Horn or on the long journey. This is further away. Yep. There was no Panama Canal at this time. Or Suez. Nope. None of that. So now we move on to the Republic of Texas. So in 1820, Moses Austin, who was a banker from Missouri, was given a large tract of land in Texas. But he died before he could capitalize on his plan of recruiting American settlers for the land and to, you know, work it to fruition. So his son, do you know who his son would be? Uh, it's a very famous name in Texas. I'm not going to lie. You said he had huge tracks of land. <laughs> and all I could think of was Holy Grail. No. Stephen F. Austin. Oh, I know that name. I don't yes. know why that name rings a bell to me, but I know that name. He took his father's plan and brought over 300 families into Texas. And this started a trend of steady migration from the United States into Texas. Now, at this point, Texas had gone through the legal secession from Mexico. Mexico just had not recognized it. And the U.S. at this point was just, hey, not our problem. But you guys do you. We like independence. Or am I a little off at the time? Uh, I'm not sure whether they... Well, we'll be getting into yeah, that here shortly. All right. So Austin's colony was the most successful of a number of colonies that were that was authorized by the Mexican government. The Mexican government needed settlers to act as a buffer between the Tejano residents and the marauding Comanches. But the Anglo colonists or the white people they tended to settle wherever the hell they wanted because they wanted the decent farmland the trade connections with louisiana rather than going more west where they would have been an effective buffer i mean if they aren't being told right here that spot right there that's yours you can go there 
and are instead being told, yeah, come on down, we'd love to have you. Yeah, I, I can see them wanting to, like, hey, that's, that's rocks and desert. This is fertile farmland. I'll take option two, thank you very much. Do you think that the white people would have listened anyway? Oh, heavens no. We went over this in yeah, the Seminole Wars. Exactly. In 1829, there was a large influx of U.S. immigrants. And the white people, they outnumber the native Spanish speakers in Texas now. And so the Mexican government decides to reinstate the property tax, increase tariffs on U.S. shipped goods, and prohibit slavery. Well... I like that. I like that last one. I really like that yeah. last one. Um, yeah, but they just pulled a Britain on I was, Americans. Yeah, I was gonna say like, guys, um, read the room. <laughs> <laughs> uh, don't you guys know what happened for the last forty years between <laughs> a different country who tried to do this? Yeah, I was gonna say like, it, you guys have ha you had to be paying attention to what was happening on the northern end of the continent. Well. The settlers and actually a lot of Mexican businessmen in this region reject the demands. And this leads Mexico to closing Texas to additional immigration. They close the borders, throw up that wall. My, how the turntables turned. Oh, no, I said what I meant. Anybody who okay. watches The Office will get it. Ah, uh, but you know what? Immigration into Texas continued illegally from the U.S. <laughs> oh, 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 that's a wrap, folks. We got it. We got the joke. <laughs> yeah, that is not it, though. So, oh, well, heavens no. Another very famous name in Texas that you might be familiar with is coming up right now. In 1834, General Antonio Lopez de Santillana, remember the Alamo, became the dictator of Mexico. Oh, is that the title he took? Yeah, the centralist dictator of Mexico. <sighs> well, at least he knows what he's about. He's like, federal system, get the hell out of here. I am now dictator. I mean, nowadays, they just go for the fancy-sounding, you know, President General or, you know, People's Colonel or something like that. Central Dictator or Centralist Dictator. <laughs> <laughs> so he decides to quash the semi-independence of Texas. And because he had succeeded in doing it in, and I'm probably going to butcher this, Coahuli. Spell it. Coahulia. C-O-A-H-U-I-L-A. I'm going to look this up and see how badly I can butcher it. <laughs> yeah, nope, not even going to try it. <laughs> right. So, finally, Stephen F. Austin. He goes to his fellow Texans and goes, To arms! They declare independence from Mexico in 1836. And Santa Anna, of course, defeats the Texans at the Alamo, but then was defeated by the Texican army, commanded by another 
famous name here in Texas, General Sam Houston, and captures him at the Battle of San Jacinto. And they sign a treaty recognizing Texas's independence. Yeah, it is awfully persuasive if your uh, army's been completely surrounded and you're captured. Yes. So Texas now consolidates its status as an independent republic and receives official recognition from Britain, France, and the U.S., which all tell Mexico, don't try to reconquer the new nation. They seem like cool folks. Just don't do it. Yeah. Now, most Texicans, as they're known at this time, want to actually join the U.S., but Congress was like, no, we're the Whig Party right now. We don't want this. Why? It's literally a massive tract of land. Great for cultivating, you know, crops. You have even more ports on the Gulf of Mexico now. All I'm seeing is dollar signs. What was their line of logic here? It's the Whigs. Were the Whigs on too tight? I, I forget what the central core tenets of the uh, Whig party were. Well, you're going to have to go ahead and look that up. This is the U.S. Navy History Podcast. This is not the U.S. Political History Podcast. So, in 1845, December 29th, Texas agrees to a offer of annexation by the U.S. Congress. and becomes the 28th state. So, after it was opposed, they were given an offer, and they said yes. So, that brings us to the conflict. So, the border of Texas as a state has not been settled yet. And the Republic of Texas claimed land up to the Rio Grande, based on the treaties of Valesco. And Mexico refused to accept these as valid, claiming that the border was actually the Nueces River. That's a huge distance. If you're not... Don't worry, folks. I'm looking it up. <laughs> if you're not... If, <laughs> if, if you're not uh, familiar with Texas geography. But Mexico was able to do this because reference to the Rio Grande boundary of Texas was omitted by the USS Congress's annexation resolution to help secure the passage of the annexation treaty. And President Polk claimed that the Rio Grande boundary, and this provoked a dispute with Mexico. So, folks, I'm, I'm looking it up. Um, the disputed territory is pretty much cut Texas in half down the middle, uh, vertically. Mexico's saying that that's still ours on the uh, west side. Well past it, the uh, state too, like going to New Mexico and Colorado, but at Kansas as well. Yeah. So, July 1845, Polk sends General Zachary Taylor to Texas. And by October, 3,500 Americans are on the Nueces River, ready to take over the disputed lands by force. Now, Polk wants to protect the border and also, he wants to make sure that they were clear to the Pacific Ocean. So, while all this is happening, Polk also writes to Thomas Larkin, 
who was the American consul in Alta, California. He says that American ambitions in California is iffy, but he is going to offer them support from independence from Mexico. Or if they want, they can come and become a state. But if the British or French try to take over, we'll oppose them. So I'm just trying to keep track of that. Pretty much telling Mexico, hey, this is happening. Just go with it. And then we'll leave. And then we'll let those folks decide what they want to do. No. There he's telling California, look, we don't want to take you over. But if you want to not be part of Mexico, we'll support you. And if you want to become one of us, a state in the U.S., we want you. But we will come help you if the British or French try to take over. That, that's a pretty solid deal. Yeah, it's not bad. That is an offer you cannot refuse. Well, you can. You can refuse any offer. <laughs> I mean, yes. In theory, <laughs> yes. But that, that, that is a... You, you want to leave Mexico? Cool. We'll help. You want to be independent? Great. You want to join us? Even better. Regardless of what you choose, if France or England get involved... We'll help you drive them off. I mean, and they didn't say if you want to stay with Mexico, cool, but I assume California at this point was like, yeah, not so sure we want to stay with Mexico. Yeah, I mean, the only ones we're having contact with are the ones getting their butts whipped by the Native Americans. Native Americans are being pretty cool to us right now. They're actually going down there, stealing stuff, bringing it to us, selling it to us. Hmm. You know. I, I I guess I never knew that uh, the two biggest states acquired from Mexico were done so more politically than militarily, at least initially. Initially, yeah. Now, of course, Oregon, war scare with Great Britain. The that was averted by President Polk signing the Oregon Treaty, which divided the territory, which actually ticked off the northern democrats because he thought he was prioritizing southern expansion over northern expansion they were pissed off they want to expand up there faster than out down south so winter comes 1845 to 46 and the explorer john c fremont appears in california with a group of armed men now he tells the mexican governor there and larkin that he was merely buying supplies on the way to Oregon. How many armed men? It doesn't say. I'm, I'm guessing at least three digits if, you know, it bears mentioning that this guy showed up with armed men. Yeah. Now, instead, he enters the populated area of California and visits Santa Cruz and the Salinas Valley. And he's telling everybody that he's... He's looking for a seaside home for his mother. Okay, but why all the extra security? This alarms the Mexican authorities and orders him to leave. So he responds by building a fort <laughs> on Galvin Peak and raising the American flag. Oh, oh. 
I mean, this is this is not good. This is not how you <laughs> foster good and healthy relationships with foreign powers. But at the same time, oh my goodness, guys, I'm just here. I'm I'm house hunting. Why why all the armed men? I said house hunting. <laughs> so when Larkins hears about this, he sends word to him that his actions are being very counterproductive. And so Fremont ends up leaving California in March, but then comes back to assist with the Bear Flag Revolt in Sonoma, where a number of American immigrants stated that they were playing the Texas game <laughs> and, and declared California's independence from Mexico. Uh, I mean, war is no laughing matter, but th this war is sounding a bit comedic. Yeah, California wants to be like Texas. So on November 10th, Polk sends John Slidell, a secret representative, to Mexico City with an offer of $25 million for the Rio Grande border in Texas and Mexico's provinces of Alta California and Santa Fe do Nuevo Mexico. Now, U.S. expansionists wanted California to thwart British ambitions in the area and to gain a port on the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, because uh, the Bay Area was still being built, but those are those see so much more traffic than, you know, Oregon or Washington. Seattle wasn't really established yet as a major port city, I imagine. No, not real big port cities. But uh, in case you were wondering there, XO... My math brain went off. 25 million in 1845 is 681 million, 442,308 dollars today. Oh, your, your math brain came with up with a different number than my math brain. And what did your math brain come up with? Uh, a little shy. Doesn't of... matter, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Captain. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh. Uh, Polk also authorized Slidell to forgive the $3 million, math brain $82 million, owed to U.S. citizens for damages caused by the Mexican War of Independence, and to pay another 25 to $30 million, $681 million to $818 million, in exchange for the two territories. So grand total, that comes out to, by today's money, about $1.5 billion. Well, let's let, let's actually do the math instead of like coming with about. So, so that's going to be a grand total of one billion five hundred eighty-one million four hundred forty-two thousand three hundred eight dollars in today monies. So about one and a half billion dollars. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> so Mexico was not inclined to negotiate, but more importantly, they weren't able to. Why? Because in 1846 alone, the presidency changed hands four times. What? The war ministry, six times. The finance ministry, 16 times. Oh, holy crap. Um, Was there a civil war going on or... Just various votes of no confidence in every department? It's a dictatorship. Lots of deaths. 
Lots of assassinations. This is like the third century crisis in Rome in the span of a year. Now, the Mexican public, uh, they were like, yeah, selling the territories of the United States. That would tarnish our national honor. And the Mexicans who oppose direct conflict with the U.S., which includes the latest president, they were viewed as traitors. So this was a classic example of, you know, everything that can possibly go wrong economically and politically in your country is going wrong. So you find a military cause to rally the people behind and pretty much we're going to mess them up and that'll solve all our problems. There was a lot of political strife at this I mean, time. With th th that is a move straight out of the dictator's handbook. Yeah. So the opponents of the president, his name was Hira, considered Slidell's presence in Mexico City as an insult. And when he considered receiving Slidell to settle the problems of the Texas annexation peacefully, he was accused of treason and disposed of. So, a man named Arigela comes to power, and in public he goes, Nope, Texas is ours. So, Slidell's like, you know what? Mexico needs to be chastised. I'm going home. I don't like where this is going. You shouldn't. War is going. Oh, oh, I thought you were going to, like, lead to... He didn't even make it out of the country because he was captured by, you know, either citizens or the military and, for lack of a better term, made an example of. And that was the inciting incident that actually made it full-on war. Actually, Paul, uh, ambassadors, politicians, visiting dignitaries, things like that, were pretty safe, even in enemy territory. Well, yeah, I was going to say, like, ambassadors, dignitaries, like, it is, like, it, not an unwritten rule, literally not an unwritten rule that they are, you know, hands off. They are, you know, immune. They are there for talking. They are not there to be hurt. Right. So don't worry about Slidell. Okay. So President Polk, he orders General Taylor and his forces south. March to the Rio Grande. And they enter the territory. So they had about 150 miles to march to get to get from the Nueces River to the Rio Grande. Uh, the U.S. claims that the border was the Rio Grande, citing the 1836 treaty. And Mexico rejects these treaties and refuses to negotiate and claims all of Texas. Oh. Taylor ignores Mexican demands to withdraw to the Nueces. And he constructs a makeshift fort which was named Fort Brown, or Fort Texas, on the banks of the Rio Grande, right across from Matamoros. The Mexican forces under General Mariano Arista prepares for war. And on April 25th of 1846, a 2,000-strong Mexican cavalry detachment attacks a 70-man U.S. patrol who were commanded by Captain Seth Thornton. Oh, well, I'm guessing those 70 didn't 
nobody made it home. That's not even a, a laughing matter about being outnumbered. Well, this was later named the Thornton Affair. It gets its own name. Oh. Yeah, they route the patrol, and 16 American soldiers are killed. Wait, that's it? That's it. That actually went a lot better than I thought. Well, unfortunately, it's Army, so we'll not be getting into that little affair. Right. So, Polk receives word of the Thornton Affair, and it adds the Mexican government's rejection of Slidell. And so Polk believes that this constituted a causus belli, or a cause for war. So he messages Congress on May 11th and states that Mexico has passed the boundary of the United States, has invaded our territory, and shed American blood upon American soil. And, I mean, you send that message, Congress got nothing to do but say, we're going to war. Yeah. So they declare war two days later, on the 13th. Was it a weekend? Like, what, what took two days to decide? Government. Oh, I suppose nothing changes sometimes. No. I mean, they had to have a vote, too. But, you know, the Southern Democrats, they strongly supported this. 37 Whigs voted against the war because of a slavery amendment. But when they passed it, only 14 of the Whigs voted no. So, war is declared May 13th, 1846. Mexico, they officially declare war on us on July 7th. So, once war has been declared and everybody gets their gum on their discount, Santa Ana writes to Mexico City saying... Yeah, I don't want to be president anymore. I don't want to do it, but I want to go fight these U.S. scoundrels. Buddy, this didn't go well for you last time. That was just Texans. The Texans, they're a different breed than you uh, people, right? I, I don't know. I've never been to Texas. That's your fault. <laughs> it's hot. It's, it's hot. That's all I need to know. I don't want to be anywhere that's hot. But yeah, Santa Ana wanted to fight off what Mexico sees as foreign invaders. So everybody sees everybody else as foreign invaders. So everybody's like, yep, we're going to put uh, Ferreras in charge and you go fight those American bastards. Now, Santa Ana, he has a secret He's been dealing with you representatives of the U.S. What? He was pledging to them that if he were allowed back in Mexico through the U.S. naval blockades, he would work to sell all of the contested territory to the United States at a reasonable price. On one hand, I'm happy that they were trying to find a relatively bloodless solution. On the other hand, I hate this guy even more now. <laughs> oh, you're about to hate him even more. I don't know. My hate meter's fairly full. We're near capacity. Once he gets back to Mexico and he is head of an army. Oh, no. He reneges on both agreements uh, and declares what? himself president again and tries to fight off the U.S. invasion. 
we have passed rage and we are now just at zen anger. I've accepted this reality. It makes no sense. Told ya. I can't tell if he's insane, an idiot, or just doesn't know when to call it. All of the above. <laughs> Holy crap, dude. You, you can't just keep flip-flopping <laughs> like that. That does not end well for anybody. Not on the political stage, especially in wartime. So, in the U.S., we are being increasingly divided by rivalry. Sectional rivalry. This war is actually an essential element in the origins of our civil war. Yeah, the, the North-South divide was decades in the making. Yeah. Most of the Whigs of the North and South oppose it, and most Democrats support it. Southern Democrats, they have a popular belief in manifest destiny, and they support it in hope of adding more territories that they could own slaves in. I was going to say, this is after the uh, Missouri Compromise of any new states below this line, you can own people in. Like, actually own them. Yeah. So, John L. O'Sullivan, he was the editor of the Democratic Review. He coined a phrase that said, quote, Our manifest destiny to overspread the continent allotted by Providence for the free development of our yearly multiplying millions. I read that as saying, guess what? We're outbreeding you. Get out. I was going to say, like, did I just hear you say American Liebenschrapt? I don't know about that, but... That's what it was kind of sounding like. Well, tell you what. Sit, hold a seance and go talk to John L. O'Sullivan. I got a Ouija board around here somewhere. Yeah, yeah Milton Bradley approved, huh? It's somewhere on my shelf. Yeah. But in the meantime, uh, northern anti-slavery elements, go anti-slavery, feared the rise of a slave power. Now they're thinking that it's going to be a political power. So the Whigs, they wanted to strengthen the economy with industrialization. They didn't want to take more land. To borrow from video game terminology, the, the Whigs wanted to build tall, focus on what they had and develop that whereas it sounds like the Democrats wanted to go for a rapid expansionist mindset, you know. Right. Develop the basics, but have a lot of territory. So, who do you think was the most vocal in opposing the war? I would assume the Whigs. What, one man in the House of Representatives? Uh, this is before Lincoln is... In any sort of political office. Um, you know the name. Oh, I'm sure I do. John Brown wasn't in any sort of political position that I can think of. I don't think Frederick Douglass was an adult yet. It's JQA. John Quincy Adams, really? Yes. He huh. first voiced concerns about expanding into Mexico territory in 1836. Because he opposed the Texas annexation. On what grounds? War with Mexico would add new slave territory to the nation. Okay. So, Democrats, they want more land. Northern Democrats were wanting more land in the far Northwest. Pretty much what it boils down to, 
is Northern Democrat, both North and South Democrats wanted to expand westward. They were in a race to see who could expand westward faster for the purposes of outnumbering their Northern or Southern counterparts in regards to pro or anti-slavery legislation. Now, uh, Abraham Lincoln, he was around during this time. Well, I mean, he was around, but he wasn't in the national spotlight yet. Was he? He was a Whig, and he contested the causes for the war and demanded to know exactly where Thornton had been attacked and American blood shed. He said, show me the spot. I thought he was just an attorney at this time. Well, I mean, when he demanded this, Robert Toombs, he says, this war is nondescript. We charge the president with usurping the war-making power, with seizing a country, which has been for centuries and was then in the possession of the Mexicans. Let us put a check upon this lust of domination and had territory, we had territory enough Heaven knew the northern abolitionists attacked the war as an attempt by slave owners to strengthen the, their grip of slavery and it tried to ensure their, their continued influence of the federal government. In other words, they wanted a slave party. Now, both sides allege that the actions of the military forces within these disputed land boundaries north of the Rio Grande, south of the... Each side was saying the other was the invader. Right. Now, yeah. So, both sides said that this was an attack on American soil. And the war advocates view the territories of New Mexico and California as only nominally Mexican possessions with tenuous ties to Mexico. They saw them as pretty much unsettled, ungoverned, and unprotected frontier lands whose non-apparitional population, if there was any at all, represented a substantial, in places even a majority, American component. Well, and it sounds like by Mexico's own admission, um, the territories that are modern-day United States and back then, northern Mexico, were treated more as like uh, buffer states from native incursion. That's what they were first established for. And then the Americans were like, this is what the land we want. You want it as a buffer zone? We just want it. And of course, there was always the fear of the imminent threat that British were going to come take it. Just march on down south from Canada and... You know, make the Louisiana Purchase suddenly... One second, I'll think of a joke. <laughs> uh, well, no, they, they they thought that they would pretty much beat them to taking that land. That the British would beat the U.S. in acquiring it. I mean, Louisiana Purchase, then heavily revised Treaty of Ghent, this is where the border between Canada and the United States territory is... I mean, Washington, I think, was British territory until American settlers just outnumbered a British colonists in the area to the point where U.S. and U.K. were just like, look, U.S., you can have Washington, all right? Stop. Yeah, but we're talking about New Mexico and California. I guess I'm just wondering how, why that was a concern, because that territorially is 
over a thousand miles from Canada. Eastern Canada? Not Western Canada. I mean, California seems like a valid concern because you could just sail down the coast, but... I don't know, I, I, I guess, you know, a century and almost two centuries of removal makes it very hard for me to wrap my head around how that was a concern. Well, we also don't know the British presence in the area at all anyway. I mean, they could have a huge presence there that we just are unknown of, that they knew about. Or Yeah, j just stuff that locals kind of like, oh, yes, you know, there's hundreds of, you know, foresters and trappers and whatever, and, you know, good old Billy British and his family just moved here from Canada. Yes, they outnumber us three to one as far as Americans go, but they seem nice. So, President Polk, he does his annual message to Congress on December 7th, and in it he details his administration's position on the origins of the conflict. He describes the measures the U.S. had taken to avoid hostilities and the justification for declaring war. He also elaborates upon the financial claims by American citizens against Mexico and argues that in view of the country's insolvency, the cessation of some large portion of its northern territories was the only realistically available thing as compensation. And this actually helped rally congressional Democrats to his side and ensures that the war measures that he puts forward gets passed and blosters their support for the war. So what sways political opinion across the board to be for the war is him saying, listen, don't think of it as territorial expansion. Think of it as us taking some, repoing some collateral because Mexico didn't pay us back various debts. Exactly. So I think that is where we're going to leave it here from next time we come to the Mexico-American War. We are going to start with hostilities. I mean, I think we already had some hostilities. We Mr. had the Santa opening. Anna. <laughs> we had some things. I don't know. But we're going to get into the war itself now. So when we come back, we will be going into the war itself. How's that? That sounds, I'd say lovely, but it's war. It's not lovely. That sounds like it'll be fun. <laughs> right. But between this one and the next one, we're going to have a bonus episode coming out on the 11th, covering what happened in 2001. So, thank you guys for joining us. Anything you want to say, Exo, about uh, what we've covered so far, or, you know, about anything in particular? Oh, hey, I found my uh, Ouija board. Awesome. All right, and folks, next week I'll have, straight from the source... The answers to all those questions I had. If you want to tweet at us, maybe warning me about the dangers of using a Milton Bradley approved Ouija board, you can tweet at us at USN History Pod. The captain just fist pumped the air. <laughs> you got it. That was it. Or you can email us 
at usnhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And he's shaking his head no in disgust. US Navy History Podcast at gmail.com. But those both will be in the show notes, so Yeah, anyway. don't don't rely on me for sharing that accurately. <laughs> <laughs> um if you guys have a chance, give us a review. Preferably five stars. We'll take a four star. Three stars, okay. Two stars, XO's gonna come hunting you down. One star, Captain comes hunting you down. Six stars, well, Apple Podcast, whoever runs that site, will come hunting you down. We'll be happy, though. Right. We'll invite you onto the show. And with that, we wish you fair winds and following seas. Bye-bye. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing. Departing.